Hi, it's Manveen here. Over the next three days, I'm handing over to James Beale, the social affairs editor at The Times. Last year, James had a conversation with the father of a 22-year-old British student who'd taken his own life. It began an investigation which took James to North America looking for answers. Today, we bring you the first episode of Poison, a three-part podcast here on Stories of Our Times. Before we begin, the following podcast contains discussions about suicide. If you or anyone you know may be affected by this, there's a link in the episode notes to the Samaritans website and phone number. And do consider if you should continue listening. Um, tell you what, let me just um, yeah, you just grab a couple and bring them, bring them in here. It's just after 12 on a winter's day in February this year, and I'm in the front room of a family home. I'm here with David Parfit, a 54-year-old who works in IT. So there's a photo here of, uh, of, of Tom with, uh, with Tigger. We're sitting on a large grey couch looking at old family photos. Absolutely grinning. <laughs> I'm really, really happy. His son Tom, around seven or eight years old in this photo, has floppy blonde hair and glasses. He smiles into the camera at Disneyland Paris. Um, but yeah, we, we used to pop over there as a family. And um, of course, as a kid, it's just a magical place to go. And he looks very happy here. Yeah, certainly was. And one, and one of my favourite photos was Tom dressed up as Fireman Sam, or at least a, a Fireman Sam's helmet, <laughs> just singing along. I yeah. love this photo. Yeah, he's, he's, he's really smart. He, uh, Tom is the middle of David's three children. Too quickly, they, they quickly grow up, so lovely to look back at some, some photos of them. His daughter and other son are now adults. In fact, David recently became a grandfather. But I'm here because of Tom. Yeah, he's... Uh, he's very young there. Very young, isn't he? Yeah. Because Tom Parfit is no longer alive. In 2021, he was found alone, dead in a hotel room, after taking his own life. Obviously, uh, having lost him, it, it, it takes, uh, I guess, a great, greater significance knowing it. He bought a substance online and overdosed. David believes his son would still be here if it weren't for that website and a man behind it. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and Sunday Times. I'm James Beale, Social Affairs Editor at The Times. This is Poison, a three-part podcast series about the suicide of a young British man and the questions it raises. It's about the heartbreak of a father looking for answers. There is just a complete lack of willingness to look at this as it should be looked at. A complete lack of understanding. And people are dying because of that. It will lead me to Canada to track down a man and question him over the deaths of several people. You're assisting suicide, are you not? Well, I'm not assisting anything. I'm buying, I'm selling a product, right? But you know what people are using that product for. I'll find out if the authorities are doing anything about it. 
in so many of these cases, you just need a motivated law enforcer. And I, I hope that even this conversation could be a starting point. And ask what needs to be done to help prevent suicides. Who is more likely to cross a precipice from thinking about suicide to acting on their thoughts or sadly dying by suicide? Part one, the life of Tom Parfit. As a journalist, I investigate all sorts of stories, but this one is problematic. Talking about and reporting on suicide is not easy. There are regulations and recommendations in place that as a member of the press I have adhered to, and rightly so. But there's also a public interest in certain reporting. Reporting that involves evidence of a man selling a substance to young, vulnerable men and women who are using it to kill themselves. This man, who doesn't live here but ships his poison to the UK, is not being held accountable for his actions, which are having a devastating effect on families. In England and Wales, around 5,500 people take their lives each year, with men accounting for about three quarters of those deaths. When it comes to suicide, I believe it's never too late to talk to someone and change their mind. And that's why I'm going to tell this story. Tom was quite short. He grew his hair out as he got older. He grew a beard, wore glasses. As an adult, he was quite slight. He was always pretty fit. He kept himself fit playing football. We'd left the front room where we'd been looking at those childhood photos and we were now in a side room in David's semi-detached house in Maidenhead. You would find him in pretty much the same clothes every day. He did have a taste for quite expensive clothes though. He used to wear Tommy Hilfiger a lot. As we talk, I find David considered. He really thinks about every answer before he speaks. I also find him warm and engaging. My name is David Parfit. I'm a data director. We're sitting here today because my son Tom took his own life about 18 months ago. I first spoke to David late last year when looking into a different story. It was then he told me about how his son had bought something to end his life. We'll come on to all that, but first, I wanted to understand who Tom was. Well, he was born on the 30th of September, 1999, in Wickham General Hospital. I think as many parents know, you get two types. You get the ones that don't sleep and the ones that sleep. Tom, Tom was a sleeper. His older sister hadn't been <laughs> a sleeper. So, you know, Tom, Tom was an excellent, chilled, calm baby and, and obviously had the advantage of a big sister to look after him. As well as having an elder sister, Tom also had a younger brother. At the time, David and his wife lived in High Wycombe in Buckinghamshire. Tom was always quite a quiet boy, really well-behaved, cheeky sense of humour. 
enjoyed spending time by himself as well. He was the kind of kid that liked escaping to his bedroom and playing with his toys. As Tom got a bit older, he grew to love football. He played for a local side, Downley Dynamos. They wore green and white hoop shirts. One memory David has is when Tom was a teenager. Tom used to play as a defender. But like most young kids, he wanted to be a striker. And he was allowed to change positions near the end of the game because they were were winning quite comfortably. And he went and scored two goals in about 10 minutes. He was really, really happy. Absolutely loved it, whether it was training or playing games. And, um, you know, we got to know kind of the, the villages and the football pitches all around South Buckinghamshire as they went and played different teams. And just fabulous. Some, some really good, good memories. When Tom was about eight, David became aware of some changes in his son's behaviour. The first time that I noticed something that maybe needed some, some attention was when he had started junior school. It became problematic actually leaving the house in the morning. He was anxious that his teddy bears were still in the right place in his bedroom, in the, in the right place on his bed. He'd often need to go and check that his teddy bears were there more, more than once. And of course, when you're on a tight schedule in the morning, it, it, it created some tension in the family. He was clearly not, I guess, neurotypical. He thought differently to other kids. He he acted slightly differently. Socially, he was actually really good, but with a relatively limited set of people. Popular kid, but only a few, a handful of of close friends. In 2011, Tom went to secondary school. From a behavioural point of view and from a kind of getting the work done, studying academic point of view, he was fine. Clearly struggled with the expectations set in terms of homework and study. And this really started to show in in Tom becoming more anxious. So the behaviours that I described before about him, for instance, his anxiety about where his teddy bear was, we saw similar behaviours emerge, again, around anxiety about the expectations that were being placed on him at school. And this really came to the fore when he, he started to refuse to go to school. And this is the first time that we engaged mental health services and Tom was diagnosed with autism. And in December 2012, David, something happened in your family, right? That's right. So my wife and I split. I moved out of the the family home, moved locally. Unfortunately, I only really saw him at football at weekends. It does put pressure on a, on a family. It's a massive change, particularly at that age. And how did that affect your relationship with Tom? It changed it, for sure. Not seeing him every day was, was challenging. In 2017, family circumstances changed again, and the two brothers came to live with their father. Tom, academically a high achiever, did well in his GCSEs and A-levels. Straight A's and everything. After finishing his exams, he took a year out to work and save money. Meanwhile, many of his former classmates were already at university. But one of them struggled and ended up taking their own life. It was an awful moment and Tom and David talked about what had happened. I 
Tom wasn't particularly close to him. But what I what I really remember about it is Tom and I were talking about this. Obviously, when these things happen, it's it's important to talk these things through. But Tom's reaction to it really surprised me at the time. It wasn't one of oh my God, that's just a tragedy. He normalised somebody taking his own life. After his year out, Tom went to the University of St Andrews in Scotland to study philosophy. It was 450 miles away from his hometown. He liked it up there, he was comfortable, but he was under academic pressure again. He was struggling with that. Uh, Tom Tom always got amazing results and he, he did absolutely brilliantly according to his professors. And while at university, what happens to his anxiety? He's mainly able to manage it. He, he, his perception of how well he's doing is almost always a lot worse than his actual reality. But David thinks that certain things didn't help his son. He didn't like having to share a kitchen, having to share a toilet. I expect from what I saw of him, you know, he'd look for opportunities for when other people wouldn't be using those facilities to go to them. That then affected his patterns of sleep, not untypical of a student. You know, he'd often be asleep until late in the day and then awake for most of the night. Did this sort of drift into depression at this stage? He was diagnosed as depressed. When I first found out that he'd been prescribed some antidepressants, my natural reaction was that that was a very bad thing for Tom. As Tom was over 18, and therefore an adult by law, David had no input into his son's medical treatment and only knew what Tom had told him. I just don't think it was the right thing to do for him to be prescribed pills. I think that made it in the long term worse. It's hard for me to know if it was the right thing to do or not. What I do know is parents are often sceptical about seeing their kids prescribed drugs for mental health issues. Also, over the last few years, there's been an ongoing debate about whether universities should keep parents automatically informed about their children's mental health problems. Just months after starting his second year, in November 2020, Tom took a leave of absence for medical reasons. It allowed him to leave the course with the intention of coming back to complete it. There was never any doubt in his mind that he was going to restart at uni to start his second year again. He wasn't nervous about it. He really wanted to do it. In September of 2021, Tom returned to university. But just one month later, he was dead. I'm David Baddiel. I'm a writer and a comedian and a Jew. I'm Saeed Avasi. I'm a businesswoman and a politician and a Muslim. Jews and Muslims always seem to be in the news or on the news. Lots of people talk about us and this is us talking about ourselves. The kind of things that people say don't touch, yeah. we are going to go there. I mean, I think Jews and Muslims are talking about these things, but I think they're not talking about them together because they're worried that if they do, sparks might fly. A Muslim and a Jew go there. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. 
Tom was back at university. He'd begun his second year. And in that first month, David thought he was relatively settled. He'd gone back happy to restart his course. And as far as I knew, he'd he'd picked up and uh, he he was doing well. But one day, David was on a bike ride in the north of England. When? I get a phone call when I'm cycling up a, a very big hill, let it go to voicemail, and then find that it's uh, St. Andrew's Student Services trying to get in touch with me. Obviously phoned phone the back as, as soon as I could. What had happened is someone had alerted them that Tom had been talking about taking his life. And um, a decision had been made to bring him into a psychiatric ward and section Tom. Being sectioned means you're kept in hospital under the Mental Health Act, whether or not you agree to it or want to go, i.e. it's involuntary. I've spoken before about how as a parent you sometimes kind of uh, naturally know things and my reaction for then was that that's a very bad move for Tom. On that day, as Tom was on his way to the hospital, David did manage to get hold of him on the phone. He was frightened. It was actually the day before his 22nd birthday. He had clearly got himself into a situation that he was trying to manage himself out of. And when you spoke to Tom, was he saying that he intended to take his own life? Not in that conversation. He initially was saying that he he'd had a bad episode He was trying to see if I could help him not to be sectioned. David was powerless to do anything about that. And just a few hours later, Tom's mood had shifted. I was standing in a Tesco car park in Concert, County Durham, just on my mobile phone, pleading with him to not take his own life saying that there was no need to, that would support him, I'd support him. And we were probably talking for 30 minutes that time. But it was quite a circular conversation. He kept on coming back to the, I'm going to take my own life. How were you feeling at that time, David? I'd had many conversations at that time over the course of probably the previous year or so with Tom about suicide, about his feelings. I I was frightened by this. In the end, Tom was sectioned, but let out after 24 hours. His mood had calmed for now. And a week or two later, he decided he wanted to come home and stay with his mum for a bit. He told David the mental health services near where she lived were better than the ones near Maidenhead, where David lives. So David drove up to Scotland to collect his son from university. He was very, very quiet in the car on the way on the way home. Didn't really want to engage, didn't really want to talk, and I didn't force him to. He actually slept most of the way. And I'd arranged to drop him off at a service station to, so his mum could take him back to, to theirs. We arrived at the services. I parked up. He just popped into the service station stayed with the car while he did that and then you know the the last time I saw him was when he when he came back his mum had already arrived 
he just picked up his his bags to go and just said bye. I remember I, I tried to give him some money and he he didn't want any any money. So what was the last thing he ever said to you? Just bye, just waved bye. Tom was never a touchy-feeling person. He wasn't one to give you a hug. He'd been with his mum for two or three weeks. I reached out to him a couple of times, but don't don't get a response. Uh, in fact, the last text I sent him, I know, was on, on the night he, he died. What did you text him? I just said, I hope, hope you're doing fine. Be good, good to talk. Not really expecting much of a much of a response, but just wanting him to know I was out there and I was starting to think about when he might come home. This wasn't the first time that David had texted Tom during this period, but Tom never responded. The following morning, at five AM, there was a knock at the door. And it was two police officers. It's a Friday morning in October twenty twenty one. Yeah, as soon as I opened the door, I, I, I knew what it would be. The, the police officers told me that Tom had been found dead in a, in a hotel, having taken his own life. I actually find it very difficult to describe. I think um, the English language doesn't really provide the words to describe what that feeling's like. Can you remember the minutes after being told that? Yeah, I, I, re- I remember them vividly. I, the, the police officers were, were excellent. How hard must that be to knock on someone's door and give news like that? And then uh, it's a mix of reactions. Part of me goes to the practical. I need to tell my family, what do I do now? Keep busy. <laughs> do something. But obviously knowing that you're not going to see him again is just, it's horrifying. Also, for me, just wondering what I could have done differently to stop him taking his own life. When did the funeral take place? About four weeks after he died. We deliberately held it in a place that was close to um, where he used to play football as a, as a kid. He didn't leave a, a will or any any instructions for what should should happen. So it was kind of up to the family to, to work out what the best thing to do. So kind of being near to a place that he spent time was important to us. Naturally for David, once the funeral was done, he tried to come to terms with why his middle child was no longer here. I was just shocked that he was able to do that. And I, I wanted to understand how. Soon, David's shock turns to anger because he realises that a man operating a website had sold his son the poison which ended his life. In the next episode, I go undercover and speak to that man. How many many people have you sent it to in the UK? It will be literally in the hundreds. And I meet a woman trying to get justice for other families like Tom's. This is just some guy that has anointed himself 
the arbiter of, of life and death. That's all on part two of Poison. While making this podcast, I got in touch with the University of St Andrews. I asked the university if they had any comment regarding Tom Parfitt's suicide. They said, Tom's death is a tragedy for his family and friends and our university community. He was an exceptionally bright young man, much loved and with so much potential. He's still missed here and his family have our continuing deep sympathies. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, James Beale. The producer is Will Rowe. Production assistance from Emma Taggart. The executive producer is Kate Ford, and sound design was by David Crackles. If you or anyone you know may have been affected by this episode, we've put a link to the Samaritan's website and phone number in the description notes of this podcast.